Well, so here we are again, a couple of days before Christmas, a lot of excitement, a lot of joy, and of course, I'm supposed to give some sermon that makes sense of all this. Well, here's a song for you. Help me out if you want. Nah, let's don't sing it again. It's the most, what, wonderful time of the year, with the kids jingle-belling and everyone telling you be of good cheer. It's the most wonderful time of the year right? It's the happiest season of all with those holiday greetings and gay happy meetings. When friends come to call, it's the happiest season of all. And it goes on just like that. Now, what is this time of year? What is it that's being celebrated? The song doesn't tell us. But I would suspect that it's something to do with, well, let's be honest, solstice. On the occasion of days getting longer and nights getting shorter, it's a time to unsad, as we say around here. If by a short seasonal diversion, away from the many sad things in life. It's a celebration, remember, that predates Christianity. Uh, It dates back all the way to the time of Moses and before, even in the patriarchal period. It's a time when nation states would, with their patron saints, celebrate the rebirth of the sun. And of course, every nation and every culture had a patron god, and therefore there would be a very religious aspect to these celebrations. We know that it's around somewhere around the emergence of the Roman Christendom in the early 4th century that, of course, the Christian god was co-opted in an attempt to Christianize solstice with the patron Christian god. Now, of course, and many of you have heard me say it before, there's been debate from the very beginning of time when it started with Christendom, as in today, the question was begged, then as now, whether or not a program, this program of Christianizing a pagan holiday had the greater effect of Christianizing solstice or paganizing Christianity. The debate lives on. I'll tell you my personal opinion. I think we need the diversion. I think there's something good about solstice celebrations, quite frankly. I would prefer we have them. We kind of need them. The days have been long, and let's just take a breath and say, wow, they're getting a little longer now. I said short, now longer, I should have said. Um, I think that's great. And even the song, it's a happy, all that stuff. Well, yeah, there's a time to just to step back and celebrate. But all the way through Christendom and the Christianizing of solstice, there has been a counter voice, what we describe as the word antiphon, that is counter voice. And out of that tradition, particularly in the monastic tradition, there has been, therefore, uh, the writing of antiphons for Christmas. We've been in this church now celebrating those antiphons, seven of which date back to around the 6th century. And these antiphons are meant to be a countervoice in the midst of the Christianization of solstice, or perhaps better, of the worry or the concern that solstice was paganizing Christianity. They're amazing. They're amazing prayers. They would be sung in the context of the church with a cantor and a congregation responding. So you've got this counter movement going on in method. But but there was always a counter voice. 
What is that counter voice today? O Antiphon, O Root of Jesse, standing as a sign among the peoples before you kings will shut their mouths. To you the nations will make their prayer. Come and deliver us and today no longer. What is the profound countervoice of this antiphon? Did you hear it? Well, let's consider this voice as it was derived, most likely we believe, most people believe, from Isaiah chapter 11, 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the root of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. What context led Isaiah to prophesy about Jesse? What was Jesse's context itself? A context that would then be traditionalized into the concept of this root of Jesse. Whatever it is, it's clearly part of the gospel. It's part of what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. For Paul will then quote it again. He says in chapter 15 of 12, we've heard it read today. Again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him will the nations hope let's consider these things as we now contemplate this this wonderful season is it a diversion perhaps but if we're going to put Christ in the muss then we should consider the counter voice of Jesse let's pray so God thank you that we have this moment to come together contemplate, to pray. Father, we do ask that Christ would come now in his presence by the Spirit. Wherever we are in this place, whatever hopelessness we experience, may we come to see the hopelessness surrounding Jesse, a hopelessness that was met with a promise, the promise of a king, his own son, a hopelessness met ultimately in Christ. Please come, Jesus. Speak into our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's talk about the significance then of this particular little phrase, the root of Jesse. Now, remember, if you don't know, that Jesse, I wouldn't have known, Jesse was the father of David, King David of Israel. In this sense, then, the root of Jesse seems plain. That is to say, the root of Jesse is King David. Root meaning some kind of a descendant, a branch of the family or stock. And here, of course, there's something going on because the root of Jesse will become a messianic symbol as we've seen in the tradition of David. Now, David's kingship is given incredible importance in Scripture. And all throughout, even by David himself, a messianic, that is a kind of divine salvific import. We see it, for instance, noted by uh, Peter in Acts 13, when he describes how it is that God raised up David to be their king. Notice that language, raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do my will. That pretty much sums up what David represented. David became the representation of a king, a king 
that is associated with the divine kingship of God himself, a king who who himself submitted to the kingship of God, who was a man, as it said, after God's own heart, a man who submitted to God's will. Now, a brief survey of this language here would help you appreciate what the apostles were saying. You go all the way back to Psalms, chapter 15, or 16, I'm sorry. And here, David says, For you will not abandon my soul in hell, or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, notice how Peter will interpret this phrase in Acts. Beginning in his sermon in Acts 2, he says this, For you will all... For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your holy ones see corruption, quoting David. And then he says this in the next verse, brothers, scratching his head, he says, I may say to you with confidence about David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us even to this day. What is he saying? Whatever David was acknowledging, he was acknowledging about himself, but not literally, but as a type. There's something going on here. For David did not ascend into the heavens, Peter goes on to say. That is to say, he is in a grave. And so the prophesying of David concerning himself was less about himself, the man, and evidently more about himself, the king, the kingship, the office, what it is that the king was meant to do. We pick up with this argument a little bit later. Peter goes on to say in verse 31, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. He's speaking of David prophetically. That David must have seen and and understood that there would be the resurrection of the Christ, the Messiah that is, that that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. In Acts 13, he picks it up again and asks for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. God speaking to his son, Jesus Christ, as to say that I will give you what was expected and promised all the way back into the kingship of David. And this will continue through the scripture. We pick it up in Revelations 22. I, Jesus have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches, for I am the root of David, the bright morning star. So clearly there is a kind of uh, ancestral link between David and Christ, but more so we're beginning to see that there's something much deeper going on, that there is an office that David inhabited as a type of the office of the Messiah. That longed-for deliverance of God, which then sets us into a kind of second meaning that comes with this idea of the root of Jesse in Scripture. For wherever you see this root of Jesse spoken of, quite curiously, it's always associated then with producing hope. Hope, of course, assumes what? Despair. Hope assumes hopelessness. The, The desire for hope assumes hopelessness. And we see that all the way already, that there's a kind of corruption 
that you might immediately want to you know, associate with bodily corruption, i.e. the fact that he was raised from the dead. But there's something else going on here, isn't there? To be sure, the root of Jesse speaks of Christ as the descendant of David, but as that one who would then satisfy hope. It suggests this. That is to say that when a tree dies and falls, you know there may remain a root which shall retain life and which shall send up a sprout of a similar kind. Where would you find this kind of use of the same Hebrew word, the root? Well, you'd find it in a place like Job. And Job uses it this way. He says, quote, in chapter 14, for there is hope of a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again and that the tender branch thereof will not cease. You hear what he's saying? When the tree gets old, when the tree corrupts, when the tree disappoints, when the tree leads us to our disillusionment, here he's obviously using it as a metaphor into the suffering that he was enduring. He's remembering the idea of the root. How it is that the tree itself, what we see on the outside, what we see on top of the earth is dead and rotten. But under the ground is that shoot. You know, some of you know I... I love going up to the uh, Adirondacks, and there's this little area of, of land down there that, that I'm just constantly cutting the trees down there, trying to keep them down, I should say. And I'll cut these little pine trees, and I mean, within two years, they're this big again. And I cut them all the way down to the ground. They're this big again. I mean, they're just like that. And you really get the sense of what, what's going on here, that you can kill the tree, the tree can die, but... You can't kill the root. It is enduring. It is everlasting. It just will not go away. And so now I find myself going down there at least once a year and finding those little shoots that are this big and pulling them out by their roots because if I wait for later and cut them down even this big, they're coming right back. Well, that's, that's the metaphor here. You see, so in relation to Jesse, though he and his offspring David they did not ultimately accomplish what Israel had hoped that they would accomplish. Somehow they didn't ultimately satisfy the kingship that the world really needed. So David serves as a type, directing us to the one who would. Now here is where I want to make sure we understand the context, the history that leads to Jesse. This brings us back, if you'll remember some of you, many years ago, but you may or may not be familiar with the Bible. That's fine. I certainly wasn't for most of my life. And and so I'm going to go back to this book called Judges. The whole book is written to set you up for the kingship of Israel. And here we have a context where, where in Judges it brings us back to a very rotten era of Israel's history. A time when things morally had gone into chaos. Section 1 of the book of Judges, that is chapter 1 and 2, they briefly introduce us to the cycle of oppression. Uh, We called it the S-cycle, sin, and then then, um, servitude, and then supplication, and then salvation. But this sin cycle, 
It just seems like there would be one cycle after another, seven particularly in the book of Judges. A cycle of hopelessness, deliverance, hopelessness again. It's a cycle that just begs for something new to get introduced into the history of Israel. The cycle again of one regime Remember, a judge was a, the word Lily Shafate, which is the Hebrew word for savior. These were rulers, governors, if you will, of Israel, particularly of various tribes. And they represented a political, civil, if you will, economic kind of new start for Israel every time they came. They'd rebuild the militaries or they would themselves interact and sabotage that which was oppressing Israel. But they always led to disillusionment. It always led to great hope being unsatisfied. And so that's section one, this, this introduction of, of Israel's sin, of doing what is, and what was it over and over, it says, what was the problem? What was the root cause of this problem for Israel? And this is important. This is where the antiphon will pick up. The root cause, quote-unquote, over and over said, is the people did what was right in their own eyes. Now, if you're familiar with this idea of original sin, that's it. Some people think of original sin as dating back, you know, something, well, it's the sin of Adam and Eve. Well, yeah, but, but it's not just a historical sin. It, it's, it's the root sin. It's the sin that begets all sins. And in the book of Judges, it wants to tell you that that sin that begets all sins is a people who are doing what's right in their own eyes. That is detached from, not under any kind of order-giving kingship. Ultimately, of course, divine. And so far, the sin of Israel, though named, has been more or less left into that first section the kind of prologue of the history of the judges. It's all behind the scenes. But that brings us then to the final section of judges. That section which is going to open up into the history of Jesse. In this epilogue session, chapter 17 through 21 of the book of Judges, it brings us back to the original sin, that which is doing what's right in their own eyes, and especially the curse and the nature of the curse that was brought upon them by those sins. Now, if you were to go back and read this section, it is arguably, in fact, I would say without doubt, the most ugly, horrific, horrible section of the whole Bible. I mean, we're talking just horrible stuff. We're talking sex trafficking, we're talking about forced slaver, slavery and, 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 and um, all kinds of, of, of abusiveness in that regard. We're talking about civil wars, tribe before tribe. It's just chaos. It's a mess. And all of these cycles of judges who've come and delivered their people, people who would presumably repent and then go back into their original sin, which would lead back to their servitude, which would then make them cry out again for a Savior. A Savior would be graciously given, and they would then deny 
the very saving grace of God and go back to their original sin again. And so in this final section, there's another motif that arises. It's the motif, quote, in those days, Israel had no king. It's incredibly brilliantly crafted, this amazing history of Israel, so that we begin with the original sin and we end with the solution. These people had no king. Over and over, chapter 17, 18, 19, 21, several times in each, this epilogue, and they had no king. They had no king. They had no king. This grotesque murders, civil wars, sex trafficking, all of it, racism, you can see it all right there. Now you think about that for a minute. Again, I don't have the time to go through the book of Judges, but it's very carefully stated in a manner that there were all kinds of secondary causes that the people were blaming, which then created more problems as they tried to destroy and kill that cause of the previous oppression or the previous injustice. It was like a horrible, horrific cycle of blame shifting like Adam and Eve in the original context where this sex trafficking was the fault of this regime or this thing and they would go and attack them and horrific things would happen and then this assault would be the result of this thing and they would go and attack them and horrible things would happen and on and on it goes, this kind of horizontal level way of blaming the problems of the world, the chaos that was facing Israel. And out of that context, the blame shifting, the the, 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 the partisan, if you will, shift that's going on within Israel and the way it's just creating all kinds of mass chaos against each other, enter into that, and these are a people that had no king. Now, you've got to understand in the Scripture, going all the way back to Genesis, the idea of Lord of Lord, King of Kings, is a prominent theme for how we define God. Great theologians have described the book of Genesis as a kingdom prologue. It's so clear. And the whole creation narrative is told that you would understand that that there are all these minor kings or what we call secondary kings, which represent genuine secondary causes of social change and, and upheaval, if you will. But there is one great king of kings. He's the Sabbath king. He's the he's the king of the seventh day that has no other day. He's the king of all the spheres of all the days. And this is just huge for you. Because here we have these ancient monastic scholars revisiting this amazing tradition of what really is Christ the Messiah and his coming to earth about. O root of Jesse. Now this prophetic vision for a Messiah after the type of David then was very much tied to this idea that Israel's problem is that they were without God as their king. They were busy doing what was right in their own eyes, and when it didn't work, they were blaming and attacking one another for their problems. Enter in the prophetic vision for the Messiah after the type of David in Isaiah 11. Remember? There shall come forth a shoot from the root of Jesse, And a branch from his root shall bear 
great fruit. Described in this great prophecy in chapter 11 as being divinely anointed by the Spirit of the Lord, we told that the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord would dwell in this great king to come as the root of Jesse. As one, it's the, he's described as one who delights in the fear of the Lord, that is, who satisfies a man after God's own heart. The description of David fulfilled. He's going to be a righteous judge who will abolish all evil on earth. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Some of you may recognize that as what Paul will quote in Ephesians 5 when he tells us to put on Christ by grace through faith, quoting that passage. He's going to be someone who will reconcile the powerful to the powerless. We hear these amazing images which deserve a sermon in its own right, but how it is that this righteous king bringing order to the life which therefore will will subdue the powerful, if you will, and empower the powerless. So that you have these images that are just classic images that have been used in literature throughout the Christendom centuries. This this image of of what? Um, The lamb lying down with a wolf. The leopard with a goat. A cow with a bear. This one... To know him, we're told, would be to know the Lord. A constant refrain by Christ when he came on earth, wasn't it? To know me is to know my Father. To know him will be to know the Lord. It says, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord through him. The summary promise is not just for Israel, not just for a faction. Now remember judges and all this infighting. But this promise is for the whole world even those who were once alienated from God. Isaiah says it in this way, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire. They will go to him. They will be invited to him. They will pray to him, if you will. And his resting place shall be glorious. And what is that great fruit? The fruit of this root of Jesse It's going to be a total and complete restoration of a glorious vision that was once begun in Eden where then the whole earth will be heaven. It's just beautiful. It's powerful. Here's the take home. I think we see here uh, something of our world, don't we? I mean, don't we see in our world the evidence of great chaos? If you read through The epilogue of Judges, you think, wow, sounds kind of familiar to us. And in some ways it did to every generation. There were always wars, it seemed. There was always the war to end war. There was always the the program, the campaign that would end it. There was always this incredible vision, horizontal to horizontal. If we just fix this, if we just subdue that, this social justice, this social mercy, we will find a way. We, our human ingenuity, will find a way. Perhaps this is uh, the real problem, you think. You see, the scenes imprinted upon our minds day in and day out are nothing short of, and I know you've been saying it like I've been saying it, this is just insane. 
I, I find myself saying that watching the news almost every morning. This is insane. The lack of civility, the lack of order, the lack, just the chaos, the passions on every side, believing in messianic ways in their program or in their, in their figure. It's chaos. It feels so stupid and purposeless. These killings in our cities, in our home invasions, genocide, wars, counter wars, drug fat trafficking, sex trafficking, insane and desperate poverty under the shadow of extravagant wealth, the insane and growing disparity between the haves and the haves nots. It just makes us sick. And of course, we come to this Christmas. Peace on earth, love, all that stuff. And I'm going, where? Where's it coming? How's it coming? Biblical word that best describes the images that invoke the O root of Jesse Antiphon is the biblical word tohu. Tohu means chaos, life without sanity, a wasteland, a world without order, a world without rule, a world without human flourishing, a world that is cursed. That word shows up all over the place. Isaiah 24 speaks of the wasted or the Tahu city that is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. Psalms 107, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in purposeless chaos, showing the impotence of the various regimes of power to fix it. Its cause, the cause of Tahu, well, again, we've seen it today. The Bible presents humanity as always blaming tohu on, at best, surface and secondary causes. No, they are causes. Like a kind of diversion tactic, if you think about it, which gets me back to my first song. Like a kind of diversion tactic of Satan himself. Even God's people are notoriously short-sighted and narrow-minded about these causes of tohu. Perhaps this is the real evil that we face. How tohu is always disguised as something else. It is masked in a short-sighted, narrow-minded analysis as if tohu is but the product of, you know, a personal crisis of circumstance, a rational crisis of personality conflicts, racism, sexism, a cultural crisis in partisan politics, an economic crisis related to one or another economic theory, capitalism versus social, whatever you want to say. It goes on and on. Now, please, you know... These are secondary causes, things that we should be addressing. It's a good thing. This then wants us, though, to focus on social justice and mercy as a horizontal program. And again, it's a good thing. Targeting the powerful and the weak, social reconciliation, economic justice, judicial justice, and on it goes. But what of all these causes, what do they all have in common? Well, according to Scripture... It's this amazing capacity to blame Tohu on someone or something else and not to look within. Not to look within. To divert our attraction. It's kind of like what we used to do when we had little kids, you know. We would, you know, kind of, uh, what, what did you do? You'd, you'd redirect their sight, take it out of their sight, and, and therefore uh, distract them. 
you know, this is a heavy message. I couldn't help it. You, you assigned the root of Jesse to me. What am I going to do? But the message is this. Let's don't get distracted here. Um, I think there's something really beautiful. I can't wait. My first son comes home tonight, my second Christmas day, my third Christmas day. And look, I need the distraction, don't you? Just a time to say, ah, there's some good things going on in life, and I love it all. I love it. Man, let's, let's, do, let's do this. Have a lot of fun. But let's don't get distracted. That is the point of O Antiphon. All such pursuits in social justice and mercy, while good, are at best penultimate pursuits for justice and mercy. For the real issue, beneath all issues, is our original sin. That sin that rejects our God and our King, as our King. In those days, Israel, we today have no king. That's the problem. Therefore, it's not of some impractical religious mumbo-jumbo that we consider anything at all about the meaning of Christmas. If we're going to do that, that we remember that what it's ultimately about is God and humanity reconciled. There is a vertical justice and mercy that must be accomplished. That's the point. O root of Jesse, says the antiphon, standing as a sign among the peoples. Sign? That is, a way to true hope. Before you, kings will shut their mouths. The monastics reminding us that all the powers of this world and all the ingenuity in this world and all the wealth, however redistributed in this world, they are impotent. They are ultimately impotent to do what ultimately needs to be done. To do what even the best of civil kings with a vision for social justice cannot do, the futility of praying, relying upon, putting our hope in, and ultimate trust in human, social, political, economic ingenuity. The monastics say, before you, kings will shut their mouths. Before you, the true Messiah. To you, the nations will make their prayers. There's the solution. Turn away. That was the, that was the message over and over to Israel. Turn away from these idols. Turn away from these gods of your own making. Turn away from doing what's right in your own eyes. Put yourself in the mercy of your creator and your God who can reorder your life and reorder our world and do so with a supernatural illumination and power, that supernatural power that would reside upon a Messiah. And so to you, the true Messiah, the nations will make their prayers, come and deliver us and delay no longer. For what we need is deliverance from our sin and a king over our lives. I love how this song is reworked. This prayer, O Antiphon, O Seed of Jesse, will then be used as the other antiphons, the seven, to construct the verses of, of O Come, O Come, O Emmanuel. I don't know if you knew that. But listen to the way that they interpret this antiphon in that song. O come, O come, Emmanuel, O come, O branch of Jesse's stem unto your own and rescue them. From depths of hell your people save, 
and give them victory over the grave. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Now let me just speak one last word before we close. I know for me, it was a source of great disillusionment once I became a Christian to go and for the first five or so years celebrate Christmas and and import into the birth of Christ all of this saving activity and work as if the birth of Christ should have changed things in the world. And, you know, that was a real theological blunder. For you have to understand that according to the scriptures, there were these three specific events, historical events. You can go all the way back and find these all, you know, imaged in the prophecies, etc. But there are these three distinct events that make up the meaning of the Messiah and how he would accomplish his work. First event was to reconcile humanity to God's justice, to satisfy the justice of God throughout his incarnation They tried to exalt him, and he would say, it's not yet time. For we know that Christ was born under the law in order to suffer the curse that we ourselves deserve by breaking that law to satisfy the greatest injustice of all, that those that were made by God's grace rejected God's grace, offended his being. And to reject God is to reject flourishing in life itself. His first mission was to be born. It was a horribly humiliating experience, that birth. And for the rest of his life, he had no place to rest his head. He was mocked and scorned and abused. He he would rise to some popularity as a freak show. And the moment he turned it to the point of his coming, which was to die, it became a stumbling block. Foolishness. And they rejected him. Please, don't make that mistake. I almost did. It almost led me to the disillusionment of rejecting Christianity again. To thank God this is not true because that birth didn't, didn't change everything around me yet. Well, it did. It changed something in here. For when you pray to receive Christ as your Savior, you're saying, Christ, deliver me from my sin and its consequences. Deliver me from God and his justice by satisfying God's justice as a God-man who could uniquely mediate between me and God. The second phase would be his ascension, that he would, he would defy death, of course, which vindicates that justice was satisfied, and that he would be raised up into heavens. And at this time is when we see particularly Paul focusing on the hope of Jesse being extended to the nations. It's a time of unparalleled power in reaching and gathering the nations together to consider what I'm talking about, up until Pentecost, Christianity and all of redemptive history before it in Israel contained a little swath of land not much bigger than, than, I don't know, New England. After Pentecost, I mean like flames, the power of the Holy Spirit broadcast Christ and it spread throughout all the nations and is still doing so to this day. That's the ascension ministry, where what we expect is a spiritual transformation through conversions and sanctification, but still not yet. He promised over and over the church would embody the suffering of Christ, that they might direct Christ, the world, to the authenticity of Christ's love. And that's what we live now. 
It's not in the history yet. But the third, of course, is that Christ will come again. And when he comes, it'll be cataclysmic and all justice and mercy and love will be fulfilled. Heaven will be on earth as it was always meant to be. And we will be fully satisfied. That's the story. I invite you, if you have not already, to receive Christ, your Messiah. If you're suffering from disillusionment and hopelessness in your life, be of good cheer, as Christ told his disciples once, for I have overcome the world. It may not be yet fully, for he is still at work doing a major spiritual work in our lives, but it will be, and the root of Jesse will be true. Our hopelessness will be met with hope again. Amen.